Welcome to the Hills. I know I'm talking to a lot of people around the world or watching online. Thank you for joining us. And also a shout out to all of you at Southlake Campus, all of you at the West Fort Worth Campus. And this day especially, we welcome all of you at Luminous City Church in San Diego, one of our church plants, joining us today. And we're glad you're with us as well. Now, if you're in person at one of our three campuses, uh, you may wonder, does this church not like young people? We love young people. You may have heard We've got 300 teenagers and sponsors at camp. We've got 250 third through fifth graders and sponsors at camp because we want to pour into the next generation. If you're visiting and you have children, please talk to one of us at Next Steps or one of the leaders, and we would love to tell you ways that we want to help you raise disciples of Jesus. And of course, it starts at home, doesn't it? So I love the story I heard last week. It was Father's Day. And the Sunday school teacher was asking the children, how do you know your daddy loves you? And the best answer is one little girl who said, I know my daddy loves me because when he reads me bedtime stories, he doesn't skip any of the pages. (laughs) Well, we must have a father in heaven that loves us because when he records in Holy Scripture the stories of people of faith intended to inspire our own journey toward faith in Christ, he doesn't skip any pages. Now, that's especially true in the life of King David, who gets more attention in space than any other character in the Old Testament. And all of his wins and losses are recorded, which must have created a stimulating debate when he was eligible for the Faith Hall of Fame. And if you're a sports fan, you get that metaphor. That when someone becomes eligible for a sports hall of fame, always one of the questions raised is, do his character issues discredit his accomplishments on the field? Pete Rose has more hits than anyone in the history of Major League Baseball, but he's not in the hall of fame because he bet on baseball. Barry Bonds hit more home runs than anyone in the history of baseball, but he's not in the hall because of suspicion he used performance-enhancing drugs. So you have, in Hebrews 11, this hall of faith. People God is pointing to, and you wonder, how did some of them get in there? We've been looking at some in this series on epic grace, like Samson or Jephthah. And the last name mentioned is David. And when he was eligible for nomination to the hall, the debate must have been stimulating. I mean, how do you keep David out? He killed Goliath and led Israel on many military victories. He wrote psalms of worship that we still sing. He gathered all the materials to build the temple. But how do you put David in? When his pride and hubris caused the death of many people in his kingdom. His failure to lead his own sons to strong faith in God. And what about the Bathsheba story? So we're wrapping up this series called Epic Grace with one of the most epic fails ever recorded. And I have a hard task this morning because I suspect the last person that spoke the day of the debate about David brought up this verse and 1 Samuel 13, where Samuel is explaining to Saul why God is not going to let him be king anymore. And he says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. 
And you're going to hear that about David many times in the Bible. He was a man after God's own heart. And my hard task this morning is to reconcile that assessment of David with the truth of what happened in the story we consider today. So here's the context. Israel's in a battle with the Ammonites. David has led them. They've had great victory. Now the city is surrounded, the capital city of the Ammonites. Now, David wasn't there. Don't make too much of that. It wasn't actually the custom for the king to be there while the city was surrounded and the supplies were being cut off. They would call the king to come when the city was about to fall. So the army is out there surrounding the city of the Ammonites. David's back in Jerusalem waiting for the word to come. And here's what we read. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. And he slept with her. And the brevity only makes the depravity more appalling. From the very beginning, David had one agenda. To sleep with a woman that didn't belong to him. And the fact that his motives were impure from the start is exposed by the revelation that this woman is the daughter of Eliam and she's the wife of Uriah. And that means nothing perhaps to you. But later in 2 Samuel, there is a list of the mighty warriors that fought for David. 30 of them are specifically mentioned, including Eliam and Uriah the Hittite. This woman is the daughter And the wife of two of his best friends. Who have spent their life putting their lives in jeopardy. Who even now are out on the battlefield defending the honor of David. That's who she is. And he doesn't give it a second thought. I want her. Go get her. And by the way, it is significant that nowhere in scripture is Bathsheba blamed for this sin. She has not been treated well in history. All over the world in art museums, there are portraits of Bathsheba. Almost always, she is scantily clad and painted as a seductress trying to lure good King David into sin. No. She was a victim. Later, Nathan will call her a little lamb. This is the story of another conquest of a powerful man who assumed he could have whatever he wanted. Bathsheba was helpless. There was nothing in that culture she could do when the king sent men to get her. And if I sound passionate and even angry, I am. I am. This is horrific. This is evil. And it still happens. And I'm tired of it. I'm tired of living in a culture where one out of every three women today have experienced some form of sexual assault in their life. I'm tired of this. And I'm tired of the way the culture has objectified and commodified women and then justified it. 
I'm tired of saying, well, that's just boys being boys. I'm tired of hearing someone say, that's just locker room talk. And understand that it happens not just because men are wicked, but because systems are wicked that protect them and cover up for them. This could not have happened without other people helping David. It happens in the world of Hollywood. It happens in politics. It happens in the marketplace. And every day we hear it's happening in churches, Protestant and Catholic, where powerful men, protected by wicked systems, are dishonoring daughters of God. And it's sin. We need to name it and call it out and rebuke it. David did a wicked thing. He used and abused a daughter of God. And he sent her home after he got what he wanted. But a short time later, he got news he never wanted. Verse 5, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Now here's David, the king of the people of God, the man who loves the law of God, the man who writes songs about how much he loves the law of God, who instantly begins to plot how he can protect his image by violating more of the laws of God. So the first thing he does is he calls Uriah back from the battle lines under the pretense of wanting to know how the battle is going. And after getting a report, he says, great, now go on home. Spend the night with your wife. But he learns the next day Uriah does not go home. He sleeps with the servants. And when asked why, he said, how can I go and be with my wife when your men and the ark of God, the God who I have come to know and worship, is still out on the battlefield? He says to David, as long as you live. I could never do such a thing. David, I am loyal to you. I am ruthlessly in pursuit of your honor. You would think that would make David crumble in shame. Instead, his heart just gets harder. He says, Uriah, come have supper with me tonight before you go back tomorrow. He deliberately, intentionally gets Uriah drunk thinking that an inebriated man wouldn't be so pious and sends him home. But again, Uriah sleeps with the servants. Uriah is a better man drunk than his own king is sober. And it just gets darker. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. This guy's in the hall? He gives this letter that is essentially a death warrant to Uriah. Knowing Uriah has so much integrity, he won't open it and read it. Joab knows something is up instantly. Because the last thing you would do is take your soldiers close enough to be shot at by the archers when you're starving a city. But that's exactly what he does. 
And not just Uriah, but other innocent men get killed. And Joab sends a messenger to tell David. He says, now be sure when the king gets angry that I let men get so close that they could be hit by archers. Let him know that Uriah's name is on the casualty list. And David sends back a message. Well, you win some, you lose some. Keep fighting. And it says, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. Sure she did. Because he was a good man. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. And I'll bet people praised David, honored David for showing so much compassion to the widow of a fallen friend. David knew how systems that protect powerful men work. Those that didn't know the whole story would never suspect. And those that did know would never talk. But David was wrong. Someone did know and had a lot to say. The last verse of the chapter says, The thing David had done displeased the Lord. In chapter 11, David's in control. He's doing a lot of sending. He sends to find out who the woman is. He sends for the woman. He sends the woman home. He sends for Uriah. He sends him home. He sends him back to the battle line. He sends orders on what to do. He sends for the woman again. But look how the very first words of the next chapter begin. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan said, David... I've got a counseling issue. Maybe you can give me some good advice. You've got these two guys in your kingdom. Now, one's very poor and one's very rich. And the rich man has a lot of flocks, cattle and sheep. The poor man, he's got this one little lamb. It it was more like a pet. I mean, he ate from the table and slept in his arms. And a traveler came through, and the rich man didn't want to kill one of his lambs, so he took the poor man's lamb and killed it. And David came off a throne and exploded. Men like that ought to die. He must pay back at least four times what he took. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Now, you've all heard those sports shows where someone shouts, You the man? It has a totally different feel when Nathan says it. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house 
because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Do you see how personally God took David's sin? God acknowledged you did wrong to the woman. And you did wrong to that man. But David, this is personal. Most of all, you despised me. David broke the 10th commandment. He coveted his neighbor's wife. He broke the ninth by lying. He broke the 8th by stealing. He broke the 7th by committing adultery. He broke the 6th by committing murder. But most of all, he broke the first commandment because he put the pursuit of his desires before God. He knew what he wanted. He knew what God wanted. And he said, I am going to have what I want. And maybe the only thing more epic than his fail was Nathan's bluntness. You're the man. Now, David's dodged a lot of spears in his life, but he can't dodge this one. And then comes the verse that disturbed me more than the ones I've already read. The verse that makes me wrestle more than any other in this horrible story. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin and you are not going to die. What? David Lies, steals, murders, then says, my bad. And God says, okay. I mean, God's response is almost as disturbing as David's rebellion. Now, it is true that Nathan announced some severe consequences. The child that Bathsheba bore would die, and there would be rebellion in David's own house as his own sons would act out in ways that reminded us of his father. But the reality is, God took his sin away. Not just that, he continues to use David. He continues to show favor on David. He continues to speak well of David's heart. God will tell Sons after David have a heart like David's. Even in the New Testament, David's heart is extolled. And I'm frustrated and I'm angry. I want God to be as mad at David as I am. And then I realize, I think I'm more offended by God's grace than I am by David's sin. Why wouldn't God allow a fail so epic to be the one thing we remember more than anything else about David? But God's grace won't have it. God's grace is so shocking. It is so scandalous. It's so unfair. And I realize there's more Pharisee inside me than I want to admit. That I'm more like that guy in Luke 18 Jesus talked about than I want to acknowledge. The guy that went to the temple and prayed. And 
told God what a good guy he was. How much he fasted, how much he tithed. And next to him was a tax collector. And his whole prayer was just beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But that's the guy that God justified. God is so shockingly merciful to sinners who beg. And David did beg. One of the songs that he wrote, we call it Psalm 51, says in the inscription, it was penned by David after Nathan came to see him. And it goes like this, have mercy on me, O God. Because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. You'll be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. But purify me from my sins. And I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You've broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. David is a man begging for mercy he does not deserve. I wrestle with the grace of God. Let me go old school for a second. Many years ago, I was in high school. I should have been the valedictorian of my high school. But I was not. Because one semester, I made one B in typing. (laughs) Hey, not that I'm bitter. I have totally moved past that stupid class. Now, all of you under 30 are not going to understand what I'm about to try to describe. But I used a thing called a typewriter. And you would punch a key and a metal arm would come up with a letter on it. And it would hit an ink ribbon and make an indention on the white piece of paper. We started using this right after clay tablets and hieroglyphics, okay? (laughs) And if you made a mistake, and I made many... You had this thing called whiteout or liquid paper and you would brush over your mistake and blow on it and let it dry and then go back and type over that. So you could pull out your paper and it said everything like you wanted to say. But if you held it up, you could see the glossy scab and you could know that was a fail right there. Now, you people under 30 don't understand this. You can't fathom this. You sit at a terminal, and if you make a mistake, you punch this little key called delete, and it just goes away. And there's just no record that it was ever there. Now, from an earthly perspective, we make mistakes. And we may never be able to erase all the consequences and the memories of our fails. But from a heavenly perspective, we make mistakes And God hits delete, and it's gone. 
It is erased. There's no evidence it ever happened. This is the stunning, scandalous grace of God. And I'm not implying that if we just say, I'm sorry that all the consequences of our fails are just going to go away. Fails can have collateral damage. But I am saying that when we beg God for mercy, we escape alienation from Him. We escape the burden of paralyzing guilt. And we escape, at least in heaven, being remembered and defined by our most epic fail. Even when we've done our worst, God is always sending His best. God sends grace. He sends grace to help the broken heart. See, we do a lot of things that can take us out of God's will, like David. But we can't do anything that can take us out of God's reach. And you cannot go where God cannot hear a prayer for mercy. David even said it in his own song, verse 17. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. And he won't. God will never turn his ear from a broken heart begging for mercy. And one sign, by the way, of our brokenness is our desire for wholeness. See, David doesn't just ask to be pardoned. He asks to be purified. Right there in the song, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. He's not just asking for forgiveness. He's asking for transformation. He's asking God, give me the kind of heart that won't be this kind of man anymore. And I think that's why David made the hall. David did not have a heart like God. David had a heart for God. No matter how much he fell, no matter how much he stumbled, David wanted to keep seeking God. And I think the more we have a heart for God, the more God in His grace will change our heart to be like God. Some years ago I had a fail. I was just honest. If I told you what I did, most of you would say it was no big deal. In fact, the people I was with said, Rick, it's no big deal. You're making too much of it. But I I knew it was a big deal because I knew why I did it. I was just honest to some friends for image advancement. And God broke me. And I confessed my sin to God. And I had about a two-hour drive one day. And the enemy just kept accusing me and I knew in my head God had forgiven me of my sin but I felt so far from God and I literally played 100 times a verse right out of this song oh God restore to me the joy of my salvation because I didn't feel it and I'm coming into Fort Worth and I drove past a church I have driven by a thousand times 
And they have a marquee. And on that marquee, they put announcement about events coming up at that church. And never one time have they ever put a scripture up. But that day they did. And I drove past that marquee. And the scripture was Psalm 51. Oh God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And you will not in a thousand lifetimes convince me that was a coincidence. That was God in his mercy healing a broken heart. And what God did for David and what God did for me, I believe God is going to do for all creation. I believe it is grace that sends hope to a broken world. We're wrapping up this series. i got to tell you, it's been kind of a tough series for me in this sense. It has not done much to raise my view of the goodness of man. Even the best of us have pages that we wish could get skipped. But this series has markedly elevated my view of the grace of God. His goodness is the only hope. For our brokenness. So last April. Was the 20th. Anniversary. Of the horrific school shooting. In Columbine High School. A school in the Denver area. And the faith community. Pastors in the area. Brought together the community for a a commemoration. They asked Christian author Philip Yancey to speak. And one of the people that came was a well-known artist, a Japanese man named Makoto Fujimari. He had deeply moved by the tragedy. And as a Christian, he responded with art. And he painted a painting that he had kept for 20 years. And he brought it that night to present to the community. But then he brought something else. He brought a bow. And he explained to them a Japanese practice called kintsugi. And it's more than just a practice, it's a philosophy. It says that you, you embrace the brokenness and you believe it can be fixed. So they take broken pots and pottery and they keep the pieces. They keep them until they're able to fix them. A master will come and he'll fuse the pieces with gold. Look at the picture more closely. And now this broken bowl is more valuable than it's ever been. That bowl was from the 1600s. It was broken in the 1700s. For generations, the family kept the pieces, believing someday it could be fixed. And it wasn't until the 1900s. And with the family's permission, it was given to the people of Columbine as a symbol of healing will come. I believe grace will fix it. Grace is the hope of the world. Sermons like this are hard. I know some of you, as I've been speaking, have had memories come back of your worst fail. That thing that makes you feel so ashamed that wish you could undo and you can't confess it beg for mercy God's grace is bigger
God can fix it. And I know, for some of you, a memory has resurfaced of the time you were failed. Someone took advantage of you. What happened was evil. And I am so sorry. Just like Bathsheba, it wasn't your fault. And I don't know how. It may be this lifetime. It may be in the next life. But grace is going to fix it. I love how the Bible treats Bathsheba. She has another son and Nathan comes and says, name him Jedediah. He's loved of God. And in Matthew 1, when you get the genealogy of Jesus, her name is there. Bathsheba. Great, great, great grandmother of Jesus. Exalted in heaven. Grace is going to fix it. I never get tired of singing the song we sang earlier today. May I never lose the wonder, oh, the wonder of your mercy. God sends grace. Grace has a name. Jesus. The Bible is telling an epic story. And it ends with Jesus making everything new. We will get the world God wanted us to have. He will not fail. And until then, the very last line of the story, the very last thing God spoke to us in the Scriptures is this. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Now, that's epic. Let's pray. Oh God, we need so much grace. We need grace for the things we've done and we need grace for the things that were done to us. We just need so much grace. We beg for it. We plead for it. We have no right to it. We're asking for undeserved grace. We're asking for scandalous grace. We're asking for amazing grace. We're asking for Jesus to come and live in our hearts in a way more powerfully than He ever has. And we ask in His name. Amen.